This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and thanks for joining us for this episode of New Books in Philosophy, which is part of the New Books Network. I'm Robert Talese. I am professor of philosophy at Vanderbilt University. I host the program with Carrie Figder, Alexis McLeod, and Sarah Tyson. My guest today is Brandon Warmke. Brandon is assistant professor of philosophy at Bowling Green State University. He works primarily in moral philosophy, understood broadly to include moral psychology and the social aspects of morality. His latest book, which he's co-authored with Justin Tosi, has just been published with Oxford University Press. Its title is Grandstanding, The Use and Abuse of Moral Talk. College courses in ethics tend to focus on theories of the moral rightness or wrongness of actions. This emphasis sometimes obscures the fact that morality is also a social project. It's something we do together. Part of what makes a decent and stable society possible is that we uphold standards of conduct. We call out bad behavior. We blame wrongdoers. We praise those who do the right things. We apologize and forgive in public ways. In short, we hold one another responsible. And this is necessary. However, we're familiar with the ways in which acts associated with upholding morality can go wrong. For instance, blame can be excessive, apologies can be patronizing, like no apologies, and so on. But one way in which things can go wrong is when people wield morality opportunistically for self-enhancement or aggrandizement in order to elevate themselves in the eyes of others. Brandon Warmke and Justin Tosi call this broad type of moral breakdown grandstanding. Their books examines, their book examines different kinds of grandstanding, demonstrates why grandstanding is morally bad, and proposes some tips for avoiding it. So as usual, there's a lot to talk about. But we should begin, as we usually do, with our guest. Hi, Brandon. Hey, Bob. Thanks for having me. That was a wonderful introduction. I don't know if we need the rest of the interview or not. <laughs> That was really that was really nice. I should have put that in the book. <laughs> I appreciate that. Um, well, there is still a lot to talk about. Uh, so you know, but but you know, we usually start this off uh, you know, asking the author uh, to say a little bit about himself. This is a little bit awkward because you're not the sole author, but still, um, maybe you can uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got into the project. Sure. Uh, well, I was I was born in um, Southern Indiana, a little town called Bedford. Well, we actually never lived in Bedford because we. We lived in a town called Birdseye, which is a population of about 400. So I, I grew up in a place that affectionately some people call the sticks. I mean, I, I grew up next to a cow pasture. Um, most people I knew were farmers, uh, tractor repairmen. Um, when I was five, we moved to a town called Kokomo, Indiana. Um, it, it, during the time the Beach Boys song came out. And so I actually thought that <laughs> the Beach Boys song Kokomo was about this little factory town in Indiana. <laughs> Uh, when, I was 10, when I was 10, we moved to Indianapolis. Uh, my, my dad was an elementary school principal, and so he kept um, uh, getting, getting better um, uh, principalship jobs at, at elementary schools, and so we moved around a bit. Um, so I went to middle school and high school in, in Indianapolis, um, and then uh, I actually went to college at a, at a Bible college. It's called Moody Bible Institute. It's in Chicago. At the time, I I was interested in going into Christian ministry and, and maybe being a theologian. Um, 
I, I'd always loved ideas. I liked, I liked arguments and reasons, but I didn't really know. Well, I didn't know that philosophy was a thing. I mean, I just, I think like most kids, uh, you, you just don't have no idea what a philosopher does or, you know, you don't know any philosophers. And so the way that I thought that people talked about big ideas and big questions was, was to do, um, was to do theology or study religion. Um, and, uh, I went to, I went to this Bible college and, uh, turns out I had discovered philosophy there and, um, had a really nice philosophy professor. And, um, it's been a few years kind of putzing around. I, I didn't really know anything about applying to grad programs. I mean, I, I was just really ignorant. And so I would just apply to random places and I had no idea why I wasn't getting in. Um, eventually I, I, I did a master's at Northern Illinois university, which is, um, uh, really, really nice terminal MA program. My, my brother Craig is actually also a philosopher. Uh, he did his master's there and he's, he's actually now a, a faculty member at, uh, at NIU. And then, uh, I started my PhD at Florida state. I, I went there to do, uh, work on free will and responsibility and, um, after three years, I, I transferred to the University of Arizona because my advisor, Michael McKenna, uh, took a job at Arizona. And um, at Arizona, my interest shifted. I, I became more interested in in, um, in issues of moral responsibility and blame. And eventually, I stumbled upon um, the topic of forgiveness. Um, so I wrote my dissertation on on forgiveness. I, I tried to give an account of, of what forgiveness is. Um, seemed to me that a lot of the literature on forgiveness at the time was, uh, you know, everyone had kind of uh, circled the wagons around one view. And I thought this view was, was um, for various reasons, not that promising. So, uh, so a lot of, a lot of my work has been on forgiveness. I think I've published, I don't don't know, a dozen or so papers on forgiveness. Um, And uh, during the end of my time at, uh, at Arizona, I, you know, I become pretty close friends with this guy, Justin Tosi, uh, who's now a assistant professor at Texas tech. Um, I remember we were sitting in a parking lot one day and, you know, this was, so this was, this was 2014. And I, I think we had both noticed at the time that discourse, especially on social media was getting, um, I, you know, it's always been kind of ugly, but for some reason it just felt really like it was getting really bad and toxic. Um, and there seemed to be a lot of, uh, you know, self-aggrandizement and um, and uh, sort of treating public discourse as a way to impress other people. I mean, this was just our impression of what was going on. And so over the next year or so, we wrote, uh, wrote this paper, Moral Grandstanding, um, giving an account of what grandstanding is. You know, it's... The use of moral talk for self-promotion, treating public discourse as a vanity project. Uh, we we gave several arguments for thinking that um, uh, that moral grandstanding was bad and should be avoided, and uh, and and the paper got some attention. You know, we um, we're really proud of it. We, it, we were very fortunate. We <laughs> it came out in public uh, philosophy and public affairs. I hope <laughs> none of the editors are listening, but we I mean we were really shocked, uh, as I think a lot of our critics were too. I think a lot of <laughs> I think a lot of people, uh, I won't name names, but there are a lot of people who I thought, who, who, you know, who I think thought, what is this garbage doing in this really clubby journal with these two no names? Um, and, uh, and we thought that too, actually. So, uh, well, we didn't, we didn't think it was garbage, but we were, we were definitely no names. Um, and, and so that paper got some attention. Um, and we, and we've written a few other papers on grandstanding since, but, um, we were fortunate, um, to work with Oxford and uh, they've been real supportive in the project. And we wrote the book uh, over the course of about a year and a half. We actually submitted the manuscript uh, over, over a year ago. It's taken a long time to come out. There was a COVID delay and, uh, and uh, we've since partnered with a, a empirical psychologist and we've, we've run a few years of studies on grandstanding. And so that's, that's how the book came to be. Uh, and, you know, I, I just got to say, you know, I think one of the great joys of, of collaborative philosophy is doing philosophy with a friend. I think you'd probably say this, too, um, uh, with your work with Scott Aiken. But it's just I mean, it's just been wonderful. I mean, he's a close friend of mine. We we will argue with each other, you know, on Skype 
for three hours and then, you know, but we're still, you know, really close friends. It's been really great to, 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 to see it, something come to fruition with, with a close friend. It's, it's been really valuable. Well, yeah. Um, you know, Scott and I, um, we have offices that are adjoined by a common, um, little alcove area. <laughs> so, you know, before all of this, um, this pandemic stuff hit, you know, a, a normal summer would be me sort of walking in at 9am to my office and having a conversation with Scott over a cup of coffee and then discovering that there was a paper to be written that I didn't have any idea about before. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, you know, uh, so um, uh, that's one of the things that, uh, that, that I guess I'm not the only one who misses, you know, is sort of uh, in-person interactions with other philosophers. But uh, let's begin um, in talking about the with the let's begin talking about the book. Um, so you know the idea of grandstanding I think is uh, is pretty familiar and intuitive. You know, sort of as you say in the book and and said a moment ago, it's sort of using you know the social practices surrounding morality as a kind of vanity project. Um, and I, I want to discuss the the specifics of the analysis uh, that you provide in a moment, but. Um, you know, maybe a good place to start is just sort of with the familiar and intuitive cases. So um, the book begins with, you know, some discussion of some things that Harvey Weinstein did and, and some more um, some more local, low profile kinds of, of uh, examples. So can you give us a sort of you know, high altitude sort of description of the broad phenomenon uh, to, that, that you're characterizing and theorizing as grandstanding? Yeah, the, I'll, I'll I'll talk about the the Weinstein case in a second. Uh, I I have to say it's actually you know and we can talk about this um, throughout. It's actually very hard to give you know just a, a sentence or a paragraph and say this is grandstanding. And the reason will, the reasons will be clear in a moment. And grandstanding is much like lying or bragging in this respect. It's it's often hard to know whether someone is doing it just by looking at what they're saying. So oftentimes, you know, to give a clear case, you really have to like ham it up. <laughs> um, you really have to really go for broke. And, uh, you know, especially when you're creating some, you know, some, some toy cases, but one case we do like to um, fixate on, and it's, it's a, it's a politically safe case. I mean, what we've found is that a lot of people have a hard time seeing grandstanding in their own, as it were, political, you know, side. Um, but I, but no one's out to defend Harvey Weinstein. So this is this is a kind of safe case. We also give a case of Roy Moore, uh, uh, the Alabama politician. But I'll just I'll, I'll just read you this. So this is after Weinstein had been accused of a lot of bad stuff, um, and you know involving women. And he has this. He like releases the statement. So he, so so here's what he says. He says, "I'm going to need a place to channel my anger." So I've decided that I'm going to give the NRA, the National Rifle Association, my full attention. I hope Wayne LaPierre, who's the CEO of the NRA, I hope Wayne LaPierre will enjoy his retirement party. I'm making a movie about our president. So this is President Trump. Perhaps he can, uh, perhaps we can make it a joint retirement party. One year ago, I began organizing a $5 million foundation to give scholarships to women directors at USC. While this might seem coincidental, it has been in the works for a year. It will be named after my mom, and I won't disappoint her. Okay, so these remarks were universally panned. I mean, I don't, I don't think there was anyone who thought, oh, well, yeah, maybe he's a good guy. Um, <laughs> you know, observers of all political stripes could see that what Weinstein was doing was dangling his intention of furthering certain moral or political causes to distract from his misdeeds. I mean, he's trying to convince, yeah, maybe I didn't, you know, I was accused of some bad stuff, but hey, I, you know, I hate Trump. I hate the NRA. You know, I'm a good guy. You know, look at, you know, look at all these good things I'm doing. Um, so, you know, again, I, I can't read Harvey Weinstein's mind, thankfully, but, you know, Justin and I think that, you know, he was probably grandstanding. This is a case in which he was, he was using, uh, using his moral discourse to try to impress people with how good of a person we are. Um, but there's, you know, there's lots of cases. I mean, it's not just it's not just celebrities or politicians who grandstand. You know, you, you flip through Twitter, you th you know, fire up Facebook, and you can see people saying things like, you know, as someone who has long fought as a patriotic American for this country, I'm absolutely sickened that anyone would suggest that burning the American flag should be legal. I'm literally shaking thinking about it. 
right? So there's a kind of like drawing attention to yourself. Often it involves hyperbole, often involves sort of a a sort of very uh, sort of strenuous moralism, lots of, lots of, you know, heavy moral artillery is being brought out. And usually what's being done is drawing attention to oneself. And, you know, obviously as we'll get into it, the reason is to try to get other people to believe something about you. Um, But, you know, uh, and I can't stress this enough. There's, there's no formula to identify moral grandstanding, but, um, but often there are, you know, there are these really sort of egregious cases that, that, you know, it's really hard to think that this person's not trying to, not trying to impress us with their, with their moral credentials. Right. And I guess at one point, you, I mean, you emphasize that, that latter point uh, throughout the book, which is uh, important and the, the analogy with lying um, is interesting because, um, you know, as, as philosophers, I'm sure lots of listeners, you know, do this in their classes or sort of like a good first day of intro to philosophy exercise to try to ask students to define what lying is, you know, sort of like we all know, we all think we know what it is. We all know that it's bad. We think we can detect other people when they're, you know, when other people are doing it. Um, but it's very, very hard to sort of get an adequate uh, definition and even harder once you get a complicated definition to see lying as the kind of thing that you could just sort of point at instances of. Um, but you do say that, you know, one, um, I don't know if the right word would be signature or one sort of signal that somebody has been grandstanding is if they're disappointed if they don't get the uptake, right? Yeah. So we give this, uh, you know, what, what we call a basic account of grandstanding. And it's just it's a very simple formula. It's got, it's got two parts. So grandstanding is basically, you know, having this desire, uh, what we call the recognition desire. And it's broadly speaking, a desire that a certain part of your audience recognize you as morally respectable. Um, and then that desire is, is hooked up in a certain way. It's motivating um, the thing that you say. And we call that the grandstanding expressions. And that's, that's the basic account. I mean, there's, there's lots of bells and whistles there. And one thing that you point out is that um, it's really hard to figure out. I mean, lots of our motivations for what we do are mixed. You know, um, there's very few things that we do that, you know, only have one kind of desire in, in the motivational base, you know, so grandstanding, you know, you, you might, you might say something in order to impress other people, but you might also say it because you want them to vote for you, or you want to, you want them to actually believe the thing that you're saying. I mean, one thing that people often, um, are confused about when it comes to grandstanding is that if you're grandstanding, you gotta, you gotta say something false, but that's just not true. I mean, um, and for all I know, everything Harvey Weinstein said was true, <laughs> but that doesn't mean it's not grandstanding. Um, so, yeah, so grandstanders have this desire. Sometimes it's a very sort of broad based desire just to be thought of as like morally impressive, uh, maybe a moral paragon. Um, sometimes it's very specific. Maybe you want to be seen as like caring deeply for the poor or caring deeply for the troops. Um, sometimes you just want to be seen as one of the gang. Um, you want to be seen as on the right side of history. Now, usually that comes with a contrast to people who are not on the right side of history. Um, other, other times there's a desire to even outdo people on your own side. Um, and so this, this ends up turning as we'll, I think, talk about in a moment, turns, turns discourse into, into a kind of moral arms race where you're trying to take a, take a more, um, morally, uh, sort of, uh, strong stance in other people. Um, so yeah. Um, and this, this desire is really important. Um, and one test that we give for grandstanding is, you know, in light of the fact that a lot of our motivations are mixed is, well, how strong does this, how, how strong does this desire have to be? And, um, and I think this is a problem for any, any account of any phenomenon that essentially involves something like motivation. So things like lying, things like bragging, demagoguery, bullshitting. Um, I mean, all these things, I think essentially, you know, in, in the account of these things, essentially advert to desires or motivation. Um, and so the question is, well, how strong does this desire have to be? Um, and what we say is we, we have this, what's called a disappointment test, which is, uh, look, uh, you're, you're grandstanding if, uh, you have this desire and you say this thing. And um, if no one came to believe what you want them to believe about you, you'd be disappointed. 
And the thought here is that not all of our desires that are frustrated lead to disappointment. I mean, uh, one of the examples we discuss in the book is like, yeah, I like the National League in baseball. I root for the National League. I want the National League to win the World Series every year, but like, I'm not disappointed, <laughs> you know? Uh, so disappointment seems to be, you know, a, a, a result of desires that, that are really strong and, and their frustration matters to us a lot. And, and so we settle on this because we think this is really what Grant Sanders are after. I mean, Grant Sanders really are after um, praise and to be seen a certain way. Um, I, I should add that, you know, one of the other things that or one other way of thinking about what Grant Sanders want is in terms of social status. And in our in our empirical work, this is how we've actually um, operationalized uh, how we think about grandstanding. So psychologists tell us there's two main ways to seek social status. One of them is by way of prestige and the other one is by way of uh, dominance. So, you know, prestige is, you know, being thought well of maybe for having knowledge or talent or skill. Uh, Maybe in the moral domain, it's people thinking of you as a moral exemplar or for having really, really impressive moral views or having a really impressive moral character so there's a kind of social prestige that can come with be seen with that can come with being seen as a moral uh, as a moral sort of paragon, uh, and so some grandstanders we've discovered are out for prestige, right? They want they want people to think of them as you know a really really um, impressive moral specimen. Um, it turns out that that form of grandstanding is actually um, it's equally distributed across the the political divide. So. It's actually a, a U curve. So um, on both the right and the left, uh, people are motivated to grandstand equally. But what you find is that um, on the far ends of the spectrum, the very far right and the very far left, you're going to find more grandstanders. And the, the reasons for that are sort of interesting. We can talk about that when we get to polarization. Um, so these are these are the these are, these are the grandstanders where you kind of like roll your eyes at and you're like, okay, this is annoying, and you know. Maybe they, they end up taking things too far and they, they end up sort of pushing us to polarize because of their extreme moral stances, because they have to stand out. The, and that's, that's really common. The, the prestige sort of striving grandstanding is quite common. Um, the other kind of grandstanding is what we call dominance grandstanding. So one kind of status that you can get, I mean, like in ancient times, you could get dominant status by like being the strongest person in the tribe, you know, threatening people, killing, killing your rivals, you know, that sort of thing, you know, intimidate others, get them to defer to you that, uh, that, that style of, of status, um, you know, in the, in modern day, you know, it might mean physical aggression, but it might mean, you know, chewing a colleague out in a faculty meeting or, you know, harassing someone on Twitter that you, that you don't like, uh, you know, shaming someone, trying to get them fired. That, that's a kind of dominant status. And, and that's a very dark, it's actually a very dark personality profile. It correlates with narcissistic um, uh, and antagonism and some other kind of dark traits. And, and uh, this, it's not as common as grandstanding for prestige. And this is, I think, what, mo- what motivates a lot of social shaming and a lot of bad behavior online is this dominance grandstanding. And it's, a, and it's actually distributed evenly across the political spectrum. So you, you, you don't even get spikes at the, at the corners. And we have some theories for why that's the case, but yeah. So, so, so these are the motivations pushing the grandstander. We all probably have these to one degree or another. And then what the basic idea is that these motivations motivate us when we're engaging in public discourse to grandstand. And the things that grandstanders say, that's, you know, that's what you see on, on Facebook or Twitter or what the politician says or what the cable news host says, you know, on, on Fox or, or um, MSNBC or what have you. And, um, and what's interesting about what grandstanders say is you'll rarely, if ever, find a grandstander just come out and say something like, I just want everyone to know I care the most about the poor. Right. No, one, no one actually says that. And, and, um, but they also grandstanders can't say something like, you know, to, to, uh, quote Seinfeld, right. The, you can't say something like these pretzels are making me thirsty. Like no one's going to believe that you care about the poor if you say something like that off, um, off topic. Right. So grandstanders tend to use indirect speech, uh, 
um, an indirect speech is a common form of social life. You know, it's, you know, you, the policeman you know, pulls you over and you say, oh, is there, is there a way to settle this um, officer? Right. You're not you're not proffering a, a, a bribe, but that's what's being communicated. And so what grandstanders are doing is they're they're using speech very. Um, um, I mean, really skilled grandstanders and by skilled, I mean, ones that can avoid detection. Um they're really good at cloaking their their status seeking in ways that that make it look like they're not doing it. So think about humble braggers. Um, humble braggers do the same thing, right? So I'm um, ha- having a really hard time ordering books on on Amazon. Is there some limit um, for best selling authors? Um, you know, so or why does my boss always assign me the hardest hardest tasks? Ah, oh, it's just really rough, you know. Um, so. So this is, yeah. So Grant Sanders use this sort of indirect language. Um, and, and so, you know, so this is why another reason why grandstanding is often hard to detect because Grant Sanders know that, you know, very clearly making yourself look good morally in, in social life is, is gauche. Like there's a, there's a norm against that. And, and the fact that Grant Sanders go out of their way to sort of um, hide their true intentions, I think, is some indication that grandstanders at some level know that what they're doing is um, is outside of, sort of socially acceptable behavior. They're they're co opting you know moral discourse for themselves. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Can I, good, can I ask a, just a, a, a real nitpicky, maybe philosophy question about the, the disappointment test? Um, and this is in part, I guess, just asking if, you know, if, if there are empirics on this sort of thing, you know, what they suggest. Um, so the way that you characterized it, and um, I'm not sure if it's put this quite this strongly in the book, is that, you know, one of the sort of disappointment test is, you know, you'll be disappointed if people don't come to believe the thing about you that you and your act of grandstanding were hoping to get them to believe. Um, <clears throat> but I'm wondering if... Um, uh, it doesn't have to be quite as strong as that because, you know, I guess in a lot of these cases, the more immediate desire looks like it's a desire for mere expressions of approval. Now, you know, the, I wonder if, the, like, well, look, all the people who are liking your post on Facebook or, you know, uh, they, they don't have any belief. They're just expressing publicly approval, whether they believe or not. You know, I'm just wondering, does it matter to the grandstander whether, whether any of the audience um, uh, or does the grandstander recognize a distinction between the sort of the person is liking the tweet? And then just moves on. But again, the appearance of getting lots of people uh, um, expressing approval is enough to satisfy the desire um, uh, rather than the actual like, no, they're really approving. You see the, yeah. you see the distinction I'm trying yeah, to draw? That's, that's nice. I, I think that um, I think that most grandstanders um, sort of a, a pre-theoretical sort of sense of what a grandstander is out for. I, I think most grandstanders would be disappointed if it was empty likes, right? So I think if, if they found out that people were just liking it because they wanted to escape suspicion or they wanted to, you know, um, make this, you know, maybe a high status person in the profession like them, uh, maybe, you know, give them a job or not come after them. I think they would, I think they would be disappointed. Um, and so, I mean, I think you're at, you're 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 correct that, I mean, one of the things that people are certainly after is the is the likes and the retweets and the and the favorites. I mean, these are this is what really feels good. Um, so I, I know certainly people are out for these kinds of trinkets of of moral reward. I think that's certainly true because it feels good. Um, and so maybe, you know, maybe the criticism is that we over-intellectualize uh, 
what grand standards are after. My suspicion, though, and, and we haven't we haven't gotten to this part empirically of the of the account um, uh, to to test it. But my suspicion is that grand standards really do want um, they don't want the simulacra of of status, right? They they really do want to be thought of as 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 morally impressive. I mean, if you if you just liked my comment and didn't think that I actually really cared about the poor or the factory worker. I think that I would feel like, uh, I wasn't really, I wasn't really successful. Like maybe it looks like this person believes me um, or agrees with me that I'm really morally impressive, but it's not the real thing, you know? I, yeah. Yeah. So I guess, you know, one way to, that one could test it is to sort of you know, tell people, you know, there's a certain non-negligible chance that the likes are coming from a bot. Right, right. (laughs) And just see if they get the kick. Uh, But then again, you know, I guess it's also that, you know, um, you're part of the the recognition desire in the account. You want the recognition, but it doesn't have to come from the actual individuals that are expressing approval. The recognition could be this sort of more indirect thing. Like, well, that people are seeing that this tweet of mine has gotten a thousand likes. Who cares where the likes are coming from? People are seeing, they don't know that they're bots either, right? I mean, um, so yeah, well, okay, very interesting. Um, so um, in chapter three, you offer a field guide where um, uh, you, you know, sort of describe various broad types or kinds of grandstanding, and particularly work through five of them. Um, can you run us quickly through this sort of taxonomy of different styles of grandstanding? Yeah, so there's lots of different ways to try to impress people in, in social life. Um, you know, sometimes we do this, you know, try to impress people with our intellect. I mean, there's lots of ways to do that. You can brag about where you went to school, brag about your LS, your LSAT score. So just like there's lots of ways to try to impress people in other domains, there's lots of different ways of of grandstanding. And we think that grandstanding, you know, tends to fall in one or more of these, uh, what you might think of as like a form or a, a, a way of grandstanding. And, and, you know, I want to be clear that we don't think of this field guide as a test for grandstanding. So if you see someone, for example, expressing excessive outrage, that doesn't mean they're grandstanding. <laughs> um, and in, in, you know, for someone to grandstand, it doesn't mean they have to express outrage. It's just a, it's a kind of just a way of thinking about, uh, the taxonomy of of the way grandstanding shows up, um, and we give a sort of empirical psychological story for why each of these happens. So one of them is called piling on, and this is a term that's pretty common now. And this is when people chime in on on a discussion just to make themselves look good. Uh, and and frankly, this was a this was um, what motivates online shaming. Uh, so they want to be seen as shaming someone. They want to be seen as signing a petition or agreeing with what someone else has said. You know, I think there's some, there's some sort of famous examples in the philosophy profession about people signing petitions or piling on to people. Um, and some of that we think occurs because people want to be seen as taking a side. So they'll say something like, you know, I want to echo what others have said. This petition is vital to the cause of justice, and I happily and wholeheartedly support it. We need to show that we're on the right side of history. I can't wait to sign. Like that's that's pretty overwrought, but that's that's the kind of thing you do see people saying. Um, and and the reason people do this, I mean, one reason is not to just to be seen on the right side of history, but there's this thing in psychologists call the black sheep effect, and it turns out, you know, if if your tribe sees you as an unfaithful or, uh, you know, um, reprobate member of their, of their group, you are judged more harshly than a right. than someone in the other tribe, because at least they're principled. Right. And, and if you're going to betray us, so, you know, if I think of you as on my side, Bob, for this really important petition and you don't sign it, I'm going to think, Oh, this guy's, this guy's defecting, right? This guy's not principled. He's not with me. And so a lot of people I think pile on because they don't want to be the black sheep. Um, they know people are watching and they can affirm their commitment to the tribe or to the ideals of the group um, by signing on. So a lot of piling on occurs because um, uh, people, people want to be seen as taking a stand. Um, uh, another form of grandstanding is. Can, can I just ask a, just sure. a question yeah. again? It's, just, it's, it's sort of a nitpicky philosophy question, but it's also, again, about you know whether there's, there's empiricals. So do you think that piling on is sometimes. Um, uh, the product of um, the attitude that 
unless I sign, and this is connected to the black sheep uh, stuff, unless, you know, the, the sort of silence is complicity thought. That uh-huh. if I don't sign on, I might as well be asserting the negation of what the the petition says. Is there is there anything that suggests that that's part of what's going on? It's like if I if I don't weigh in on this, um, people are going to sort of like draw like a Gricean implicature yeah. <laughs> that I yeah. must not agree with it. So yeah. I better I better you know block that implicature. Yeah, I think this about <laughs> this is maybe a bit personal. I think this about like Trump stuff. Like, look, I didn't vote for Trump. Um, but I, I never, I almost never tweet or do social media. I just find it aesthetically kind of boring (laughs) and uninteresting, but I, you know, so I like, I'm not like, but you know, uh, you know, as you know, um, there are lots of people who are like, like Trump, it's like Trump all day long, like Trump, 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 like, Oh, Trump did this, you know? And it's just like this constant, like, Oh, this, this is what he said. This is what he did. And I, I've often, well, I mean, I'm, I'm almost certain at this point that because I don't do this and lots of philosophers don't do this, I think there's this kind of suspicion like, oh, well, you must like, you must, you must love this stuff, right? Because you're not also joining in. And so, yeah, I think, um, you know, I haven't, I have to think more about the silence is complicity. I think that is a little more complicated. Um, um, but, but I do think you're right that there, that, that people do understand that it's possible to be a black sheep and they don't want that. And they're, they're, they're more afraid of being, you know, excommunicated from the tribe or being canceled than they are of saying something. Well, maybe they don't believe it. Maybe they do. Maybe they're, maybe they're unsure, but there's an easy thing that I can say to reaffirm my status in the group. And we know there's a whole literature on the false enforcement of norms that people will actually not just, you know, like, like the Ash conformity studies, but not only will people conform to it, to something they'll, they'll, They'll punish people for not conforming to a norm they don't even agree with. (laughs) And it's because that's a costly signal that you're, that you're one of the group is that if you're willing to go punish people. So it's a bit off topic, but. um, No, great, great. So, okay. So we've got piling on. Yeah. So Uh, then, uh, so ramping up a second. So this is, this occurs when moral talk uh, looks like an arms race, like a moral arms race. People make increasingly strong claims about some matter of discussion um, and this this happens because of this um, longstanding finding in, psych- in psychology called social comparison. And the basic idea is that the way that we think of ourselves is in part how we measure up against others. I mean, this is in a way so obvious you don't have to say it, but, <laughs> but right. you know, like you might think of yourself as funny when you're with your family and then you hang out with your friends and you're like, oh, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not funny at all, you know. Um, so how we think of ourselves is often in comparison to how we think we, re- we relate to others. And so if you think of yourself as like really caring for the poor, really caring for, um, you know, immigration or something, and then this, this discussion gets going. So you think you have this place of status in the group and then someone else says something like really impressive and you're like, oh, oh shoot, right? Like I have one of two, I can let this person sort of take pride of place or I can outdo them. Um, and I have to stand out. Right? So I, I, I take a more extreme stance. And so you know, I think maybe this is revealing something about my cynicism, but I think a lot of the recent discussion about, um, re- you know, reforming the police, you know, we, we went from reforming the police and like, we need serious change to like abolishing the police, like literally getting rid of the police in like 48 hours. And, you know, um, putting on my grandstanding hat and my, my psychology hat, I'm thinking these are people who two weeks ago would not have even thought about getting rid of all, like literally getting rid of all police. And now they're like, well, yeah, this is obvious. And I think, well, this is, there's something, there's some interesting mechanism going on here. Um, so that's, that's ramping up. Um, and then there's, we have this, uh, phenomenon called trumping up. No, no relation. We actually, wrote, <laughs> we actually wrote this in like 2014, uh, this, you know, this idea and like well before Trump was, you know, even really a serious <laughs> So there's no relation. This is when people, in order to be seen as more sensitive, you know, have a very, very sensitive moral gaze, right? They're very attuned to matters of justice that fall below the radar of other people. They're, they're sensitive to wrongs um, that, that the rest of us don't see. And, and this is a case of moralizing. So we discussed some Julia Driver stuff and other people, other things people have written on moralizing. So make, taking a non-moral issue or a morally innocent issue and trumping it up, um, 
And so, you know, examples like when the Republicans thought it was like the worst thing of that week that Trump, or excuse me, that Obama wore a tan suit. I don't right. know if you remember this. He wore I a tan, tan suit to discuss ISIS. Like that was the infraction. It was a huge deal. He also, he exited, um, I think Marine One or Air Force One. He had a coffee cup in his hand and he saluted a Marine. And this was, it actually is a minor infraction of like military protocol or whatever, but like people lost their minds on the right about this. So like making a mountain out of a mohill. And so this, you know, Grand Sanders are able to do this because, you know, the rest of us rubes can't see what a, but you know what an egregious moral wrong this is. But they're gonna they're gonna illuminate um, the moral world for us. And then and then we have this um, this fourth one called strong emotions. And this is when people use moral outrage or other uh, you know they could be negative emotions. They could be positive ones. I mean, you might have seen someone say like you know someone takes some like really costless stand and they say this is the most impressive. I'm in awe of this person's bravery. And it's like no, they just like said this thing. Like all their friends agree with it. Like this is not brave. Um, but often, but often, um, excessive or strong emotions, um, happens with moral outrage. And, you know, for a long time, psychologists, I think, thought that the moral outrage you see is because people are reacting, sincerely reacting to moral injustice. But what we know now is that people express outrage for all kinds of reasons. They do it to alleviate guilt. They do it to avoid suspicion of their own bad behavior. And we know that they do it to try to impress others. So this is sort of Linda Skitka's work on moral conviction, what she showed is that um, outrage is a reliable signal that you have moral moral convictions. Um, so the, the the more you're morally convicted about something, the more likely you, you know, that you'll express outrage, um, in a, you know, by, in a violation of something that you care about. And so one way to signal against this backdrop of the psychology, one, one way to show that you really care about something or that you're really morally impressive um, is to get outraged about it, right? To get outraged about a cup of coffee um, so, and then the last thing is what we call dismissiveness. And this is when people talk as if their views are morally, I mean, utterly obvious. And that anyone who has doubts or disagrees is beneath contempt. Um, so, so you might say something like, if you can't see this war is just, then your, your views are beneath contempt. I refuse to engage with you any further. And if you don't understand why I'm not going to waste my time explaining it to you do better. Um, and, and so a lot of times grandstanders just dismiss, you know, things that are, things that are complicated for the plebes, right. Are not complicated for the morally enlightened among us. Um, and so that's, that's dismissiveness. And one thing I just want to add in that all of these cases, all of these sort of kinds of grandstanding, there is a kind there, there is a morally innocent analog. Um, so there, you know, there, there, there is misplaced or strong outrage. That has nothing to do with grandstanding. You might, you might just have a false belief about what happened. Um, dismissiveness. I mean, we're not saying you have to like take every moral view seriously. Um, some things you can dismiss like, okay, someone wants, wants to defend slavery. It's like, okay, well, I think we're not going to have time for that. Right. Um, there's, there's a kind of trumping up that can be innocent. There's a kind of ramping up. I mean, people might in a, in a conversation take extremely really more extreme views, but it might be because they're actually reasoning through these things and actually coming to a more extreme position. Um, and same with piling on. I mean, just because people sign a petition or whatever doesn't mean they're piling on. So, no, what's tricky is that there are there are non-grandstanding driven instances of all these things, but also grandstanding driven instances. And that's why, you know, so grandstanding is a really quiet poison because it it often it it cloaks itself in a kind of of normal moral discourse. And but, it, you know, it often has nefarious ends. Great. Um, so there are two chapters in the book, uh, I'm sorry, three, um, where you give, you know, what I think of as sort of like a, you know, cover the bases or ducks covered kind of account of the sort of what makes grandstanding morally problematic. Um, and so there's a chapter about the bad consequences or the social costs. There's a, a chapter about the ways in which grandstanding uh, can be disrespectful to others, a Kantian infraction. Uh, and then there's a, a, a third chapter about whether um, grandstanding is something that virtuous people would do. Um, can you tell us a little bit about those arguments? Yeah, I'll, I'll just run through them real quickly. Um, so, yeah, so we we just throw a bunch of arguments at the wall. I mean, we're just we you know we think that you know no matter what your normative ethical commitments are, we should all be able to get on board. No matter what your political or normative ethic you know ethical commitments are, you should get on board. 
and condemn grandstanding. So we have an argument that grandstanding has lots of bad consequences. We don't think this settles the issue because, you know, obviously there may be some really good ones, really good consequences. We have to weigh against the bad ones. We do discuss some of those. But the major bad consequences are um, grandstanding contributes to polarization, something that you've thought and written about a lot, um, both, you know, what you might think of as like political you know, polarization, but also effective in how we feel about other people. And some of our recent empirical work supports this, that grandstanding is actually causing people to polarize. Um, you know, polarization is bad for lots of reasons. Um, the reason we focus on in the book is that it leads to false beliefs. Um, and, and, and that's because of the mechanism. The reason that people arrive at these views is not because they're looking at evidence or considering arguments. It's because they're settling on a position that, that impresses people. And the thing that impresses people is not going to have a reliable relation to the truth. And so, and also you get this on both sides, right? So you have people polarizing you have a non-truth tracking or non-sort of truth-sensitive mechanism for arriving at the truth. So a lot of people are going to end up with false beliefs because of all the grandstanding. Uh, another consequence is a lot of um, cynicism. I mean, moral talk is a really valuable tool. It's our primary way of bringing to bear moral problems in the world. It's how we stand up for the oppressed. It's how we identify wrongdoers. And when grandstanding gets, or when discourse gets overtaken by grandstanders, and people can see that, look, moral talk is just this nasty place where people are trying to make themselves look good and dominate others. Like they're just going to check out and um, they're going to think morality is, you know, morality is just hot takes, right? If you look at like how journalists write, if you look at how journalists on Twitter write about morality, that's basically how they think about morality. It's like morality is a hot take. Um, and so you have this cynical view about moral talk and it's not people getting together, you know, as you might be. You know, thinking about you know de- you know deliberative democracy, it's how people get together and talk. I mean, I don't really know what I think about those views of um, pl- pl- excuse me political theory, but you know it's a really important tool just for social morality. And the more the more people are are cynical about moral discourse, the worse off we are. And then we have this argument against um, uh, grandstanding because it contributes to outrage exhaustion. So when outrage is used as a tool for impressing others, it it, it devalues the social currency of, of outrage. So we find it harder to muster outrage when it's appropriate and we dilute the signal of outrage when it is. So it's a kind of crying wolf problem. Um, so those are, those are several of the bad consequences we, um, we identify in, um, in the first sort of moral chapter. The second chapter is, you know, as you rightly know, it's kind of, it's a kind of Kantian respect-based chapter. Um, the first argument targets people we we call these people showcasers <laughs> showcasers yeah. are people who um who recruit unsuspecting and unwilling parties into a public display uh in order to show off how how good i am um, by shaming them doxing them trying to get them fired right and our argument is that um look morality is not just a convenient excuse to use another person showcasing treats people as mere instruments for personal gain. You're out to look impressive or dominant. And so you're just using these people, even if they've done wrong. I mean, we go through several arguments, even if they've done wrong and even if they're, they're blameworthy, um, there's something morally wrong about treating people uh, the way that, that, that um, showcasers do. The other, the other, uh, a second sort of respect-based argument is that grandstanding often involves deceit. Um, Most of us think we're better than the average person, but we're not. Um, and so often when we're presenting this really impressive moral image of ourselves, we're deceiving others about who we really are. And you might think, well, what's the problem with that? It's pretty harmless. Um, but it turns out that, you know, when you, it's really easy to, um, uh, allow people to trust you when they shouldn't trust you. So think about like, you know, this Ted Haggard, the case of Ted Haggard, I mean, Harvey Weinstein, I mean, pushing, you know, uh, I won't name names or, but there's a, great, a, lot of, a lot of grandstanding male feminists turn out to be, have a history of bad behavior. Right. And so you think there's a lot grandstanding can, can um, dupe people into trusting you when you, when you really shouldn't um, be trusted. And the last sort of respect based argument has to do with free riding. Grandstanding is this cooperative venture. It works well when people follow the rules and, restrain themselves. Um, it's a, you know, moral talk is a common resource that can be, you know, destroyed, uh, can be, um, degraded 
And I think we're seeing a lot of that now. It's like, it's just a total toxic waste pit. And it, but, but it's a really valuable common resource. And what grandstanders do is they, they free ride. Um, I mean, the only reason grandstanding works at all is because there are lots of people following the rules. There are lots of people sublimating their desire for, to, you know, to impress other people to look good. They, they care more about, okay, what's the, what's the evidence, you know, what's the reason, you know, whatever. And, uh, but grandstanders are receiving the benefits of other people following the rules of discourse. Uh, and yet they're defecting from the rules by seeking, seeking benefits for themselves that they deny to others. So there's a kind of free riding argument. Um, and then the, the, la- the last moral chapter is this kind of virtue theoretic chapter. We argue that, um, well, if you think about a really virtuous person, why would they be contributing to discourse? Well, they would do it maybe for altruistic reasons. Um, they care about the poor. They care about people. They want, they want um, things to get better. Um, they they want to help. Uh, maybe, maybe they do it for dutiful reasons. They're just convinced that some moral principle is true or something ought to be done. And so that's, they're trying to convince people to believe these, these true things. Um, but another kind of motivation you might have is egoistic, right? So you engage in public discourse for egoistic reasons. And we just think there's a kind of traditional Aristotelian argument here that, that, um, that virtuous people would not, um, civically virtuous people would not engage in public discourse um, for egoistic reasons. I mean, if you found that, like, if you found some journal entry of, like, uh, you know, some some famous speech, you know, maybe uh, it's a Gandhi speech or something, and you, you think the speech is amazing, and you find a journal entry where he, like, confesses that he's only doing this to, like, impress people, like, your, your moral, you know, you might not think he's a bad person, but your moral assessment of his character would, I think, be downgraded. Um, so that's, that's a, that's one kind of virtue theoretic argument. Another argument we give is a, is a virtue consequentialist argument. So some people have argued that vanity is a virtue. I mean, Hume kind of says stuff like this, Smith's kind yeah. of works with this idea, uh, that vanity is good because it motivates us to do stuff that we wouldn't otherwise do. Right. Um, and we wouldn't help people far away. So we need to like do it for vanity and that help, that gives us reason. Um, and our argument is pretty simple. It's just like, look, even if vanity is a virtue, um, uh, it's only going to be good if the people who were acting on their vanity have the right moral values, right? I mean, that's, right, that's right. so, yeah. so you have to have the truth and at least half of us, I mean, maybe all of us are like wildly wrong about all kinds of stuff. Um, but then, okay, suppose, suppose your side, you know, my side has the right view. Um, there's this empirical question about does vanity in public discourse have good consequences? And that's what chapter four is about. And we argue that it doesn't. And so even on virtue theoretic grounds, we think that grandstanding fails. Um, and then we give a kind of Nietzschean argument. <laughs> this is this is the book. I think the part of the book where we're most ornery and we're most, <laughs> most uh, basically we say that grandstanders are pathetic. Um, I mean, we all want to satisfy our will to power. We all want to accomplish and overcome obstacles and accomplish our goals. What grandstanders do is they try to seize, they try to feel good about themselves, they try to seize social power and status by using morality as a weapon. And we just think that it's it's really pathetic to use morality. This is something that like Jesus and Nietzsche can agree on. Like using morality to make yourself look good or to dominate others is pathetic. <laughs> it's just it's bad to do that. Truly excellent people won't use morality to satisfy their will to power. They're gonna have they're not going to have interest in petty attempts to gain status um, through these sort of you know strategic uses of moral talk. They're actually going to accomplish good things and not just sort of engage in these sort of moral trinkets. So, so those are the three chapters. For all those reasons, we think that grandstanding that there's at least a strong presumption that grandstanding is wrong and should be avoided. Fabulous. Um, so we're we're coming into you know the sort of ten minute mark of you know uh, till the end of the interview. And I have sort of two questions that I, I want to get to. So um, I'm going to do what we sometimes do in uh, philosophy colloquia, to sort of like lay out the two questions and then ask you to answer both um, in in the same response. Does that help? Um, so, you know, the, the book closes with a discussion of um, sort of the political impact, uh, the, the, the negative political impact of grandstanding, uh, particularly in the context of uh, democratic politics. Um, and then um, a final chapter is about um, 
what can be done about grandstanding. So, um, you know, in the time that we have left, can you address uh, in, in one response to sort of the political impact and also uh, maybe this isn't such a difficult segue after all now that I'm articulating it, the political impact of grandstanding and, you know, what we, maybe we collectively uh, as well as individually can do about grandstanding? Yeah. So there's probably no people more famous for grandstanding than politicians. Um, uh, and there's, and we argue in this chapter that uh, a lot of grandstanding from politicians is a demand side problem. Why do, why do politicians grandstand? Because we want them to, <laughs> we want, you know, if you look at polls for, you know, why do people vote the way they vote? They, they, you know, they value moral character and certain shares my values. And these are all, you know, fine as far as they go. But what it does is it provides politicians an incentive to display their moral values and outdo each other. So we politicians grandstand because the, we want to see them put on a morality pageant. That's what we want. Um, and this leads, you know, we argue this, 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 this leads to several problems. One of them we, we call the no compromise problem. So what one thing grandstanding does is it, it, it incentivizes us to see every compromise with the other side as a rotten compromise with evil. And so, you know, if your side is the side of angels and the other side is the side of Hitler or Mao or whatever, then any, any compromise is a rotten compromise. And so that's, that's going to cause a lot of gridlock. Um, I'm actually okay with gridlock, but I think for lots of things we should be trying to solve, uh, grandstanding can get in the way. Um, grandstanding also causes what we call the expressive policy problem. So we tend, voters, we, we tend to value policies that are express our values. Um, so this is some work by uh, Guido Pensione and Fernando uh, Tesson that we discuss and that people, people want policies that um, express their values. But the mere fact that a policy expresses your value doesn't mean that policy actually works. So here's a, you know, when, you know, we use needle exchange programs in the book, but also you can think about rent control laws. So rent control laws offer a very vivid, but morally interesting and obvious solution to housing shortages. Um, but the vast majority of economists know that rent control laws don't work. They reduce the quality and quality of housing. And so the, the politician has two choices. They can, they can go hit the books and learn what actually looks, uh, learn what actually works. Maybe it's zoning, maybe it's whatever. Real boring stuff, right? <laughs> or they can get up there and say, we're going to pass a law and then like tomorrow housing will be affordable and that's vivid and it's appealing. And so a lot of voters um, uh, want to see their values expressed by these policies and, and, and often these are counterproductive or they backfire. And, and this has to do with wanting to see our values manifest in ways that maybe we shouldn't care. Maybe we should care more about policies that work than policies that express our values. The last, the last problem that grandstanding causes in politics is what we call the paradox of, of solving problems. And the basic idea is that if, if politics um, becomes a morality pageant, contestants have an incentive to keep problems intact. Or even engage engage in a kind of moralizing activism with no clear aim at all that tries to find new problems, you know, create new problems, and so people invest their identities in these problems existing, and so their incentives are for the problems to remain. So you you know a large part of our identity might be you know pro life you know being being pro life advocating for pro life causes or uh, you know uh, certain kinds of um, you know, maybe police reform or whatever. And a lot of people's identities are wrapped up in these causes. And that's, 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 that can be great. Um, but it's also good to have clear goals. And um, we think that what grandstanding does is it incentivizes people to not have clear goals in their activism um, because they, the main goal is to, is to express their moral values, to show off how good they are. And um, what gets sublimated is actually solving problems. And so there's a kind of incentive to not actually solve social problems, at least among certain, certain portions of political activists or political actor types. Um, so that, that chapter concludes, you know, we just, you know, we tend to blame politicians for grandstanding. Um, it's funny when we bring this up with, you know, people, we talk about the book, you know, we, we say we're writing a book on grandstanding and they say, Oh, you mean like Trump or, Oh, you mean like, you know, I don't know. Um, Oh, you mean Bernie Sanders, whoever, you know, whoever they mentioned, they, they list some politician. Um, but our view is that in a democracy, uh, you know, and 
I'm sure you have lots of thoughts about this. But in a democracy, they they do it because we reward them. If if they don't if they don't do it, they lose their job. Um, and so and so we you know we try to argue that the reason why we see so much grandstanding is because we reward it. We share some of the blame. Um, yeah, we, that, get, we get the poli- we get the politicians we deserve. That's right. That's right. I mean, that's, yeah. that's, that's it's a it's a platitude, but it's it's true. I mean, it's it's often true anyway. Um, Okay, so that leads us to this last chapter. What can we do about grandstanding? Um, so I have to say, giving people advice is about this is fraught with all kinds of problems because, um, especially when it comes to politics, because it often looks like you know we're we have some hidden political agenda um, that we're trying to sort of push a certain partisan politic or a certain ideology. So everything we say in this chapter is tentative. A lot of it's empirically based. Um, we draw on a lot of psychology, a lot of um, discussion of uh, Christina Bicchieri's work on norms. Um, we talk about public defecation. <laughs> and uh, so here's what we say. First of all, one obvious way of trying to um, eliminate or reduce grandstanding is by calling people out. We have a long argument against this. We think that for epistemic, moral, and pragmatic reasons, uh, um, we think that this is a bad idea. The epistemic reasons are, look, it's really hard to know in any individual case whether someone is grandstanding. And so you should err on the side of generosity and charity when you're going to you know, publicly blame someone. Um, and so uh, there's a kind of epistemic humility for moral reasons. Look, I mean, again, you shouldn't go around blaming people just because you have some hunch um, that, 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 that they're a grandstander. And then for pragmatic reasons, we just, um, you know, maybe, maybe you'll appreciate this, especially this pragmatic reason. It's like, look, the, the first time that ever that anyone calls someone out for grandstanding um, and like people respond well to it, like that's not going to like, that'll be the first time. Like no one's like, no one's like, no one does that. Like, Here's what happens. You're a grandstander. Oh, yeah. Well, you're a grandstander. Oh, you don't know what's in my heart. Oh, yeah. Or like, how, how dare you, right? You're trying to subvert my political views. You're trying to silence me, right? This is just not, this is not going to end well. Um, so, what do we say instead? So, we say it's probably not a good idea to call people out for grandstanding. What should we do? Well, our goal should be to change, um, to, to limit our own grandstanding and then to also help change social norms. So, we divide this into like, personal change and then social change. So the personal change is like, you know, one, you know, one thing we're struck by when we talk about grandstanding is people people immediately want to know like, well, who are the grandstanders? How do I tell who the grandstander is? Like no one ever asked us, how can I stop grandstanding? <laughs> like that's never the response. So, so we hope that people will ask themselves questions like, well, you know, when I fire up Twitter, am I doing this to look good or am I doing this to actually do good? And um, so... You know, once you've once you've been convinced, hopefully that grandstanding is a problem that we all do it from time to time. It's good to limit it. Um, one thing we say is to sort of engineer your situation. You know, one of the findings of psychology in the, in the 20th century is that situations make a huge impact on our behavior. And so, look, if you know that scrolling through Twitter for hours a day is not conducive to like restraining yourself from grandstanding, maybe you should like put a limit, like 30 minutes a day, okay, or I'm only going to use Facebook for an hour today or, you know, whatever. So engineer your situation so it makes it easier to not grandstand. There's also this, um, you know, you can sort of plan to succeed that um, using what psychologists call implementation intentions. And the basic idea is that it's it's easier to change your behavior, not just if you have a goal, but if you have a way to uh, uh, to accomplish your goal. Um, and often these are put in terms of if then statements. You might, you might tell yourself like form an intention. You say, if I see a post that makes me angry, then I will close the browser and watch Netflix. Right. (laughs) Um, so those kinds of intentions can be help helpful in, in changing our behavior. And then the, the final sort of personal change thing is to redirect your recognition desire. We all have this desire to impress other people. I mean, we don't think it's plausible to totally get rid of this. But one thing you can do is redirect it to activities that are more beneficial. And even if you're, even if you still want the praise, right? So instead of like cheap talking on Twitter all day long, like go volunteer at a soup kitchen. And we're not going to tell people how to spend their time, but like go volunteer at a soup kitchen, take a picture of yourself and put it on Twitter. (laughs) At least, at least that way you're actually going to be helping people. 
Um, okay, so then socially, what can we do to try to limit grandstanding if we're not calling people out? And one thing we talk about is setting a good example. And we actually draw from some of your and uh, Scott Aiken's work and set a good example for how you engage in discourse. You know, admit that things are complicated. Um, when you're arguing, make your premises clear. Anger is not an argument, right? Admit mistakes, admit you're wrong. Um, and then one thing we add is, you know, be harder on yourself than others, right? Um, this is, has to do with a fundamental attribution error. You know, we see other people as evil and stupid and we're, you know, even when we make mistakes, well, we, we meant well, right? So be harder on yourself than you are on others. And the last thing we say is, it's true that you can't call people out. We think that's a bad idea. But one thing you can do is withhold praise from the grandstanders. So try to make it embarrassing to grandstand. This is how you, you change norms. I mean, imagine you know, writing this long, involved, moralistic post that's supposed to make you look good and then no one liking it, no one, no one caring. For most of us, that's embarrassing. And, I, and that's how we change norms. I mean, we, we close the book talking about medieval etiquette manuals. And you have like people like Erasmus saying like, when you're at the table, guys, like don't chomp with your mouth full like a pig, you know, and he had to write these things because people actually were doing this. Like they were like really messy eaters and I mean, it was really disgusting. Um, and, you know, those sorts of behaviors became embarrassing. And so, you know, our humble, modest goal for the book and talking about it with people like you is that ostentatious, moralizing, self-aggrandizing moral talk becomes a little more embarrassing to engage in. Well, fabulous. Um, Brandon, uh, I want to thank you uh, for joining me on New Books in Philosophy. It was a real pleasure uh, to talk about your new book. Thank you so much for having me. This was uh, this was really fun, and um, and you do a great job with this podcast, Bob. I I, re- I really appreciate what you're what you're doing with it. Well, I appreciate that. Um, uh, so let's uh, thank our listeners as well. So thank you, listeners, for uh, joining us for our discussion. Um, I've been talking to uh, Brandon Warmke uh, about his new book, which is co-authored with Just- Justin Tosi. The book is titled Grandstanding. The Use and Abuse of Moral Talk. It's, it's really a fantastic read. Um, it's uh, just out, brand new, uh, with Oxford University Press. Thank you for listening to New Books in Philosophy. Bye for now.